Welcome to the Not Old Better Show, Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang. And as part of our Inside Science interview series, we have an excellent program about bizarre cosmic objects whose gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape them. Those objects being black holes. Our guest today is Smithsonian Associate, scientist, journalist, and author Kelly Beattie. For the past 35 years, Kelly Beattie has kept his readers on the edge of their front row seats to much of the exploration of our solar system as senior editor of Sky and Telescope magazine. Kelly Beattie will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his presentation at Smithsonian Associates is Black Holes 101. Thank you so much for listening today. We have got a great guest today for our Inside Science series with Smithsonian Associate Kelly Beattie. Kelly Beattie is a popular returning guest in the program, and I always look forward to speaking with him. I'll introduce him in just a moment, but quickly, if you missed any episodes, last week was our 702nd episode when I spoke to journalist, activist, historian, and author of the new book, Formidable, American Women and the Fight for Equality, 1920 to 2020 for our Women's History Month. Two weeks ago, I spoke with science writer Lizzie Stark about her new book, Egg. Excellent subjects for our Not All Better show audience. And if you missed those shows along with any others, you can go back and check them out along with my entire back catalog of shows all free for you there on our website, notold-better.com. Myself and many of us in the Not Old Better Show Smithsonian Associates audience may have learned that black holes are bizarre cosmic objects whose gravity is so strong that nothing, not even light, can escape them. And although you might guess that Einstein came up with the concept of black holes, the idea can be traced back to the late 1700s, well before Einstein's time. But Einstein did develop the notion that three-dimensional space and time are part of a single framework to describe the known universe and how black holes shape it. More recently, gravity wave observatories have detected the ripples in space-time created when two of these objects collide. And we've even managed to glimpse silhouettes of the most massive black holes known ever. Science, space, and exploration is what and who our guest today, Kelly Beattie, is. Kelly Beattie, now retired, was the senior editor at Sky and Telescope magazine. He's with us today, and he'll be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up to discuss how cosmologists still grapple with precisely what black holes are and how best to study them. Black Holes 101 today. You're going to love this show. Kelly Beattie, welcome back to the program. Hey, it's a pleasure, Paul. Great to be back with you. It's so great to talk to you, too. I, I enjoy this subject, this, the subject that we're going to talk about space, and, and in particular, we're going to talk about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, Black Holes. I know I'm going to in, enjoy this conversation with you. I'm going to learn a lot, and I think our audience is, too. So let's just jump right into this, Kelly BD. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation? We're all on Zoom these days. Maybe tell us how you're going to use Zoom to engage our audience about Black Holes 101, which sounds fascinating. Yeah, I just happen to have a couple of them in my garage, so I'll bring them out as demos. <laughs> no, uh, you know, 
<laughs> I think everybody has this kind of uh, distant fascination with black holes ever since every time they're mentioned. And people like the subject but don't know anything about it. <laughs> so my task, my pleasure will be to kind of bring that all down to earth in ways that can be pretty easily understood. I won't I won't claim that this is not going to be a little bit technical, but it's I think with within most people's grasp to understand what I'm talking about. And along the way we'll lay a foundation for lots of things going on in physics. Uh, we'll touch on relativity and what that's all about uh, and and obviously describe what we think black holes are and what they aren't and where the research on them is going in the future. Well, thank you for that. Well, you, you mentioned relativity and and not that I, you know, I will, I'm going to expose my ignorance right here out of the gate, uh, Kelly Beatty, and just say, so when you, when you mention relativity, I think of Einstein, is that where black holes the history of black holes is does it originate with Einstein? Is it pre-date Einstein's work? Where where do we kind of land there? And you can be as technical as as you'd like because I think our audience is going to value this. No, it's funny. I, I I'm I'm kind of smiling here to myself because uh, <laughs> you know some people think oh it must have been Einstein or Stephen Hawking or something like that. It turns out that the first notion that something could have so much gravity that nothing could escape dates back to the 1700s, if you wow. believe it. And at that time, it was kind of a mathematical curiosity. Uh, we know there's a simple formula that says, you know, force equals one half the mass times the velocity squared. And you run those numbers, and uh, this is way before E equals MC squared, okay, from Einstein. But you you run that calculation, and, and mathematicians could envision something so massive that nothing could escape and even light back in those days light was thought to be corpuscular like particles and it's true that we still talk in terms of photons of light individual packets of light but also light has this sort of dual nature it's a wave phenomenon too this goes for all kinds of radiation so this notion of a of a uh, supermassive object uh, was dallied with with uh, phys uh, physician I'm sorry uh, physics aficionados uh, and mathematicians, and it wasn't really thought of as a real object until it became and with with Einstein's general relativity. Now we're flashing forward to you know 1915 16 uh, more than a century ago. It, in quick uh, succession, after Einstein published his two relativity uh, theorems, other physicists concluded that there was a scenario in which something could be very massive and yet be not, uh, could exert a lot of gravity and yet not have mass, be a singularity where there was no, there's no there there, but it still exerted all this gravity. And an important concept here was Einstein's revelation that uh, our universe exists as a intimate mingling of both space and time. In fact, we call it space-time now. Um, space doesn't exist without time. They're one and the same. And so he introduced this notion of gravity being a warping of space-time. Um, and therefore, this notion of black holes became more and more possible. But then the real key came in the 19, 
60s and 70s with the discovery of objects in our universe, pulsars in particular, that are super massive but super dense object. The the collapse of stars that leave uh, it's a ball of stuff, but the matter in it is what we call degenerate. It's it's the gravity is so intense that it's broken down into its protons and electrons and neutrons as a kind of soup. And so it wasn't long after that that astronomers looking around found an object that seemed to fit the criterion of a black hole. It's it's called Cygnus X1. It is in the constellation Cygnus. It's actually a pair of objects orbiting one another. One is a big star, and the other was this thing that was sucking matter off the big star, but it had no obvious presence. And that was the first demonstrable case that a black hole actually existed and wasn't just a theoretical construct. All this is so fascinating. The 1700s, I I had, I really had no idea. And your mention of the term warping was very helpful in kind of creating an image in, in my mind's eye about what this kind of might almost look like, that it that it's warped. And so I'm wondering too, are there different kinds of black holes out there, some that warp, some that don't. The Cygnus X1 sounds fascinating. Sure. Let me let me yeah. run with this warping thing for just a second here. Okay. A common way to imagine the warping of space-time is to picture a, a, a rubber sheet, right, that's stretched real taut. And in the middle, you place a bowling ball. And so the bowling ball is going to sink in the middle and create a depression in the middle of this rubber sheet. And if you try to put a marble, roll a marble around the outside edge, it will eventually spiral into where the bowling ball is. The bowling ball has warped this two-dimensional sheet. Now, if you take that analogy and imagine it in three dimensions instead of two, you get a sense of the warping of space-time. And so what black holes do, uh, and there are different kinds, they're the up until recently, and this is one of the reasons that I like to give this talk, because there's new news. Up until recently, astronomers and cosmologists imagined only two kinds. One is the kind of black hole that is created when a, uh, a supernova goes off and explodes, and it, and it leaves behind a, a, the charred core of what had been a really massive star. And when that happens, and when the supernova goes off, there's no longer any fusion fire in the core of this star to keep it inflated. Uh, and, it, and so it collapses. And if it's a, at least a certain mass, it collapses to form a black hole. Our sun, when it dies, will not form a black hole. It'll make what's called a white dwarf. It's not nearly massive enough to, to create um, uh, either a supernova or a black hole. So that's what we call a stellar mass black hole. Stellar meaning star a black hole that's roughly the mass of a star. The other type is at the very opposite end of the spectrum, what's called a supermassive black hole. And these were thought, uh, were discovered to exist because of phenomena happening at the cores of galaxies, including our own galaxy. There were things spiraling around going very, very fast near the, the very center of the Milky Way that could only be explained by an incredibly massive object, in this case, something that's about four million times the mass of our sun. But it had no physical presence. There was no, there was no big, shiny ball there. And so this became the notion of supermassive black hole, 
and it turns out that astronomers now believe that virtually every major galaxy, every substantial galaxy out there, and there are hundreds of billions of them, has one of these supermassive black holes at its core. So it's a very common thing. And, you know, just rolling with this for a second, just within the last three or four years, three years, again, this was theoretical, where there was some observational evidence, we could see things spiraling around very, right, orbiting very quickly, implying that there was something massive at the center. But I think a lot of people saw this kind of ghostly orange ring uh, that was announced after a massive multinational collaboration lasting years. And it is a it is a sense of silhouette. It's a big orange ring with a black uh, uh, empty spot in its center. And this is a kind of picture of the area around the supermassive black hole in a galaxy far away called M87, Messier 87, which is millions of, of uh, light years away from us. But it's in some ways, it's very much like our Milky Way. So here we had proof, finally, of the existence of supermassive black holes in other galaxies beyond our own. Hi, it's Paul. Do you love entertaining, informative, eclectic, insightful programs about culture, health, science, life, and everything Smithsonian? As part of our Smithsonian Associates interview series on radio and podcast, we're introducing you to the new Smithsonian Associates streaming series. Smithsonian, a nonprofit organization, is excited to present this new aspect of their 55 years as the world's largest museum-based educational program. Join us from the comfort of your home as we periodically interview Smithsonian Associate guest speakers. Our audience here on radio and podcast can explore our website for more information, links, and details at notold-better.com. Thanks, everybody. We are with Kelly Beatty. Kelly Beatty is a returning guest, Smithsonian Associate, and will be presenting at the upcoming Smithsonian Associates. Kelly Beatty's title of his presentation is Black Holes 101. I just think this is going to be fascinating. I know our audience is going to just enjoy this, Kelly Beatty. We we so much appreciate your time and your returning to us and talking about black holes. Kelly Beatty, of course, has been explaining the wonder of planetary science, the sky, space exploration, and has done so as senior editor of Sky Telescope since 1984. He retired in 2018, but he's here to talk to us today about black holes and will be appearing at Smithsonian Associates coming up. Please check our show notes for more information about Kelly Beatty's presentation. Kelly Beatty, I, I, science is important, and and we recognize that. What if we, if we can't see these? And you describe this orange uh, ring with a black, uh, almost a black dot in it. It it of course immediately brings to mind a very vivid image. But if if we can't see that so much, how how do we know that that exists so far away from us, so many millions of light years away sure. from us? And, and uh, let's get into sort of what happens when you get near a black hole. Uh, one of the things about these objects is that they can grow. They can get bigger. They can uh, draw things into them. And in fact, the, the very term black hole was coined some decades ago uh, to evoke the Black Hole of Calcutta, a famous prison where people came, well, came went mm. in but never came out. And so okay. uh, that's, that's kind <laughs> okay. of 
You know, prior to that, it, the 1700s, they had been termed dark stars, and uh, mm. and and then a cosmologist came up with with a very accurate but unwieldy term: uh, gravitationally collapsed objects. Uh, and that's what these are. But it black hole is definitely a little bit catchier. I, I think you'd agree. So <laughs> it, is. it is. And so um, the 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 idea that these black holes exist mean that they can grow. They can, things fall into them. And when they do, they hmm. end their their uh, distinct lives rather violently as the stuff gets accelerated <laughs> into the into a black hole. Uh, it gets moves much faster. Often there is a kind of disk of matter, uh, and think uh, rings of Saturn as an example, a disk of matter mm -hmm. encircling the black hole, uh, awaiting its, its ultimate demise. And so when this stuff starts to fall in, it gets the friction, causes it to be heated to millions of degrees, and it gives off tremendous amounts of energy, a burst of energy. And so, for example, in uh, are the supermassive black hole in our Milky Way or in some other galaxy, were a star to fall in, we would see that as an intense burst of energy, especially high energy, gamma rays, x-rays, ultraviolet light. And that would signal the end of a star as it gets swallowed up. And so this, this picture that emerged from M87, the glow around it was in fact this accretion disk as it's called the disk around the the black hole itself so it wasn't like the black hole suddenly became obvious to it rather we saw the distinct ring of matter around it and the and what where the black hole would be is essentially a silhouette where none of the light from mm. this disk was escaping mm. so it looked like a big donut yeah absolutely fascinating stuff and and i i I, I do like the the term black hole. It, it it does it does grab attention. So can one black hole absorb another? Does that happen? And what what happens when that occurs? Paul, you've hit on what is the new frontier of black hole studies. <laughs> Just within the last decade or so, um, there has been an observatory or two built on the Earth to detect what are called gravitational waves. And uh, let's go back to that stretched rubber sheet analogy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> if, I, if I take a, uh, a marble or something, uh, or, or certainly a bowling ball, but if I take a marble and I bounce it off the sheet, it will create a ripple that propagates across the sheet. It's kind of the same way when you drop a, a pebble into a, um, a pond or a lake, you get a, a set of waves that emanate outward from that. Astronomers have known for some time that black holes often occur in pairs. I was mentioning Cygnus X1, one object in orbit around another, mm -hmm. and, and they can occur in pairs. And they interact with each other in a way that essentially robs the system of energy, and they collide eventually. They get closer and closer, and they collide in just a split second. But when they do that, their individual gravitational forces become combined as one, and it creates a disturbance in the force, to use a, mm -hmm. uh, a you know a, a phrase from our TV and and uh, movie lingo, a disturbance in the force, and so that is a gravitational wave, and it propagates outward from there at the speed of light, um, and so these detectors on Earth started 
online about 10 years ago, and almost immediately they started picking up signals from the the com uh, the combination the co uh, collision of two black holes together, or maybe a black hole and a neutron star, or you know these massive objects. And so we've now been able to uh, sort of get a census, if you will, of everywhere in the in our immediate universe where this is happening, and that has been. A revolution. We can tell from the strength of these gravitational waves and how long they last, much like hearing a note played on a piano, you can get a pretty good idea of where on the keyboard it was struck and how hard it was struck. Similarly, these gravitational waves tell us the masses of the two black holes that have combined into one. And so it's just the 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 speed at which we're learning more about black holes has really taken on a kind of breathtaking accelerated pace just within the last few years. And these gravity wave observatories are really the, that's the source of a lot of this kind of new news, as you say. Yes, uh -huh. there's one in, uh, there's one in Washington state and one in Louisiana. And essentially what they are is, um, uh, uh, giant mirror assemblies miles long where there's a mirror at each end and uh, equipment that knows exactly to, uh, you know, the, the size of an, uh, a molecule, how far apart these mirrors are. And there's a light beam going between them. When a gravitational wave sweeps over the earth, it, it because it's traveling at the speed of light, it will affect one end very slightly sooner than the other end um, and so the distance between the mirrors will change and the, and the equipment picks this up and it picks this up as a change, uh, a disturbance in the gravitational field uh, that, that is holding all of this stuff together. And that's how we detect the gravitational waves. Um, it's very delicate, sophisticated work. Uh, in, in some sense, no one knew, having built these things, uh, whether they would work, whether there would be any detections strong enough to be picked up. But it turns out that we have dozens and dozens now. Just they come every year now, um, uh, and it, it's giving us a great handle on where these things are happening, how often they happen, and uh, what the objects are—the black holes are—that collide to form them. All great stuff, Kelly. Beatty, uh, I know you're very busy. We sure appreciate your time. I, you know, I want to go back. I said that you had retired from Sky and Telescope in 2018. I, I'm not sure that I have that correct. Maybe you're still <coughs> working with them as a senior editor, and and maybe tell us a little bit about that. But maybe tell us what's in store for 2023 regarding the Sky and total solar eclipses and what you're doing with all of this. I, I think I recall from a previous conversation that you actually lead some tours up on some of these subjects so our audience can really gain. So much of the sky is so fascinating, I think, to all of us. And we, we, look, we look heavenward for a lot of reasons. But tell us what you're doing and what we can look forward to in 2023. Yeah, Paul, you know, I, I did retire in 2018 and I, okay. I essentially do no writing anymore. Um, I have left that to the next generation of editors at Sky Telescope, and they're doing a fantastic job. The two things I continue to do is I create a monthly podcast about what's up in the sky. It's about 12 minutes mm -hmm. long, and uh, no equipment is uh, required. You just go outside and look up and, and, let, and listen to me explain where things are in the sky. And you can find that if you just go to skyandtelescope.org. 
and search on Sky Tour, you'll find my podcast. It's also on services like Stitcher and Apple Podcast. But the other thing I do is I guess what there there people like to go see eclipses and they like to go see things mm-hmm. that are astronomical. So mm-hmm. my yeah. my big remaining task is to organize those tours all over the world uh, with an astronomical theme. Um, and for example, this coming April, there's going to be a total eclipse of the sun in, and in fact, not long after I give my Smithsonian associates presentation, I think it's on March 29th, I'm heading to Australia and I'll help lead a group of about 150 people on a cruise ship to witness a total eclipse of the sun. Now that won't be visible here in the United States, but you're not going to be left out completely. About six months later in October, there will be an annular eclipse of the sun. This is what's called a ring eclipse, where the moon covers the sun, but the moon is slightly farther away, so it doesn't quite cover all the sun, and a a ring of sunlight is left in the sky. The path for that will go from Oregon, down through the Rockies, over Albuquerque, and through Texas. So if you're on that path, you'll get to see this ring eclipse. But everywhere else in the continental U.S., in the contiguous U.S., we'll see a partial solar eclipse that day. And I think the date is October 14th, if memory serves correctly. So that's something to look forward to. But that's that's six months away. Let's do something really a lot closer right now. As soon as you hear this podcast, assuming that it's still early March, find mm-hmm. a spot where you have a clear, unobstructed view toward west and a clear sky, and you will see very dazzlingly bright Venus and not quite as bright Jupiter paired together in the Western sky in dramatic fashion. They're closest on March 1st, just a half a degree apart. And to put that in context, for those of you listening, stretch out your arm and hold up your pinky finger, your little finger. Okay. Your fingernail okay, will cover both of those planets at the same time. <laughs> and, wow. and then in the days thereafter, they'll kind of drift gradually farther apart. The other thing I want people to know about is that the sun is really active right now. It has an 11-year up and down activity cycle, and it's on the upswing. There are a lot of sunspots and consequently a lot of auroras percolating. When the sun gives off a blast of mass and energy, uh, it, it collides with the earth. Fortunately, we have this terrific magnetic field that protects us, but the con, con- uh, But the consequence of that collision is that particles of sun's atmosphere flow down into our magnetosphere and create these beautiful auroras. And just a couple of days ago, we had a pretty significant auroral storm. I expect many more of them in the months ahead. So people should keep an eye out. There are a lot of apps and online. Uh, You want to do a search on space weather to get uh, some aurora predictions. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yes, March 29th, Kelly Beattie will be at Smithsonian Associates. We will put links so that our audience can find out more information about Kelly Beattie's upcoming Smithsonian Associates presentation, as well as the Sky and Telescope podcast that he mentions, his tours, these dazzling, bright Venus half-degree apart with our thumbnail 
uh, measurement ability than all of the sunspots and auroras that Kelly Beattie's been talking about today. Again, Kelly Beattie has been telling us about black holes. That's the title of his presentation at Smithsonian Associates, Black Holes 101. Kelly Beattie, thanks for coming back and talking. We look forward to having you back. I think this is something that our audience just enjoys, and they certainly will enjoy you coming up on March 29th. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, thanks so much, Paul. Always a pleasure, and I wish everybody clear skies for 2023. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kelly Beattie. My thanks to scientist, space explorer, journalist, and Smithsonian associate Kelly Beattie. Kelly Beattie will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates coming up, and the title of his Smithsonian Associates presentation is Black Holes 101, so please check out our show notes today for more details. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for all they do to support the show. You will find out more information about Smithsonian Associates in our show notes today. My thanks to you, my wonderful Not Old Better show on radio and podcast. Please be well and be safe during these times. Please be kind to one another and let's do better. Let's talk about better. The Not Old Better show on radio and podcast Smithsonian Associates Inside Science interview series. Thanks, everybody, and we will see you next time.